I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, Credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M-E-E-R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, Consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, later on in the show, we'll be speaking with returning guest Marlon Ettinger, otherwise known as The French Connection. He's helped us untangle the Epstein story at various points, and he's back from a stay in France where he was covering the election. So we're going to be talking about that as well as his new book, Zamor and Gaullism which is about the right-wing figure Eric Zemmour and the legendary French statesman Charles de Gaulle. But first, historian Matthew Spector joins us to discuss his book, The Atlantic Realists, Empire and International Political Thought Between Germany and the United States. Matthew offers a critique of foreign policy realism or the realist school of international relations in this book, which delves into such figures as Hans Morgenthal, as well as the legal theorist Carl Schmitt. 
Now, it is Matthew's contention that realism represents the shadow self of liberalism. That, of course, is only just a taste of some of the topics we'll be covering in the conversation to follow. And with that being said, I want to get right to it with Matthew Spector, author of The Atlantic Realists, Empire and International Political Thought Between Germany and the United States. Welcome to Parallax Views, guest I've been very interested in having on the show for some time now, uh, Professor Matthew Spector, author of the fascinating new book, The Atlantic Realists, Empire and International Political Thought Between Germany and the United States. How are you doing today? Doing great. Happy to be here. So I guess where I want to start is uh, defining terms a bit, because on this show, we've talked uh, about realism with people that are uh, that, that define themselves as realists, people like Shireen Hunter, um, Stephen Walt. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it's a term that needs defining for some of my listeners if they're new to the term. And also, uh, you provide a sort of critical perspective, which we'll get into. Uh, but let's first start with what is uh, realism within international relations thought? Uh, well, it's 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 not the easiest question <laughs> in terms of defining it because there there are so many different uh, branches of the tradition. Um, there's the classical realism of uh, the mid twentieth century, uh, represented by thinkers like Hans Morgenthau, E. H. Carr, uh, other German emigres like John Hertz and the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, in the late 1970s, the major figure of realism um, is Kenneth Waltz, whose theory of international politics in 1979 really begins the neo-realist turn. Um, and neo-realists divide into offensive and defensive realists. And so Waltz is typically considered a defensive realist where it's Mearsheimer uh, whose who's 2001 book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, uh, uh, is a, a signature of, of the offensive uh, realist tradition. Um, so it's hard to define realism without caricature because um, uh, as, my, as my colleague, William Scheuermann at Indiana University has shown, um, the many of the the realists um, who have been critiqued as uh, completely lacking a normative perspective or being completely committed to uh, uh, the nation state and hostile to world government um, have actually overlooked the strongly cosmopolitan dimensions of the thought of a figure like Morgenthau or Carr. And Carr, Carr is probably the most interesting of the realists for his socialist politics. Um, and so, um, I mean, my, my ideal typical description of realism is, is very critical. And my reading of Morgenthau is much less sympathetic. Um, 
um, than, uh, than Scheuermann's. Um, so, sorry, this is kind of a long-winded way of handling the question, but, um, you know, today there's an effort to, uh, that, I, that I very much respect to try and formulate a progressive uh, version of, of realism that would be cognizant of the real distribution of power in the world economy and in the international system, and yet find ways to push this system towards greater justice, um, greater concern for shared challenges like pandemics uh, and, and global warming. Um, and perhaps also by recognizing the real shifts in the balance of power in the world economy, um, create international institutions which can better reflect those power differentials um, and be more effective as a result. And so uh, I've just read a, a great essay by my colleague George Lawson at Australian National University, who, who is part of an Australian group who are, who are arguing that, you know, if the left is going to be a player in contemporary, if the left is going to win elections, it's going to have to offer uh, a realistic account of foreign policy that can compete uh, with that of the populist right, which is really offering more a kind of um, go it alone uh, 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 nationalism or, or various various versions of uh, of autarky or, or worse. Um, so I've, I guess I'm beginning my comments with a very sympathetic picture of realism. Of course, that's not what I do in my book. Um, what I try to do in my book is argue that um, realism has, uh, from its origins in the 1880s through to uh, the, um, through to the mid 20th century classical realist moment, has always had both democratic deficits and imperial blind spots. And What's new about my account of realism is to suggest that, um, firstly, that I don't think that, and I can elaborate on, on why I think this is the case, that, that the progressive left, that there's less in the realist tradition for the progressive left to appropriate uh, usefully than many of my colleagues think. That is, realism is fatally flawed in, in, in some way and therefore not a great asset um, for our moment. Um, the second intervention is to say that a great deal of the prestige uh, of realism attaches to uh, the figure of the German emigre. So many of the founding generation Hans Morgenthau, of course, was the figure. He was a German Jewish emigre. He uh, um, taught generations of students at the University of Chicago. And his book. I, I think he even mentored uh, Kissinger, right? 
there was a there. Uh, I don't know how deep that that relationship was. They, I, I've certainly I've looked at their correspondence, and they they tend to, they have a falling out over Vietnam. Uh, I, I don't think Kissinger was ever his student, but there was a respectful uh, interaction there. So Morgenthau is the most influential mid 20th century realist. He's the one who puts realism on the map in the American intellectual discussion. He's close to Kennan at the State Department. Um, and um, a, a great deal of the, the sort of prestige of realism derives from the fact that figures like Morgenthau, Hertz, and Wolfers had fled Nazi Germany and therefore um, brought with them a sensitivity to the fragility of liberalism and the need to be sober about the real nature of power politics, right? So that, that liberalism's collapse uh, made it necessary for liberals to make a realist turn, to appreciate the nature of power. And I think that every but generation- Real quick, when, yeah. when we say appreciating the nature of power, and, and I'm gonna use yeah. Mersheimer to illustrate this, and I'm not sure, um, you know, he, I, I don't wanna treat John Mersheimer as like, the sole voice of realism. But right. the way I understand John Mersheimer and this idea of the, the great tragedy of power politics is, uh, you know, as long as there are these nation states that are fighting for resources and uh, security or permanent security, uh, you're just going to have a system that's uh, uh, what, what's called the anarchic world system. And that's the tragedy of it because there's always going to be conflict as a result. Uh, is that one way to sort of sum up realism? Yeah, I'll, I'll come. I'll come, I promise I'll come right back to that. Um, but just on the German emigres, that 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 the because so many of the mid twentieth century realists were German emigres who had fled fascism, the prestige of realism, and this is relevant to why. Uh, I mean, basically, it's the tragic nature of the collapse of democracy uh, in Europe that generates the figure of the tragedy of great power politics, the permanence, the ineliminability of tragedy. And this is a big concern of my book is that I think that we can do better than to believe that we, to resign ourselves to uh, a tragic world of, um, uh, of anarchy and, um, and that the only ordering principle that really works in the end of the day is that of hegemons, their spheres of influence and the balance between them, right? And so what I try to argue in the book is that it's not so much this mid 20th century moment with the, where the, the, the pathos of, uh, of Nazism and, and the Holocaust is the decisive, um, uh, historical context for realism, but I take us back to the 1880s and 90s and say it's actually the high watermark of European imperialism uh, that gives rise to a, lots of new concepts. The term geopolitics is coined uh, in 1899, the term Lebensraum, uh, which means space for living. And then I also try to move the chronological marker back Realism is usually dated to the 1930s and, and this mid-century moment, this confrontation with fascism. I move it back to 
the late 19th century. So to come back to your point about anarchy, um, yes, I think that um, the description of the world as fundamentally anarchic, there's no 911 to call, and therefore each state is thrown back on its sovereign resources. This is, this is a very problematic uh, image of the world. And the, the neorealists have more of an abs of a kind of billiard ball um, model of international relations with these atomic units that are kind of bouncing off of each other than the classical realists. The classical realists were much more sophisticated about transnational networks and interdependencies. They just didn't think that international society was mature enough uh, to be the substructure of a world state. But actually the mid-century realists, many of the mid-century realists hoped ultimately to overcome international anarchy uh, through uh, a, a world state. The second problem with the anarchy um, problematic is that it obscures how much of international politics is structured by hierarchy. And, um, uh, you know, I think it's not a coincidence that Waltz's uh, breakthrough text, Theory of International Politics, which focuses on the bipolar world system, the balance of power, um, and, and all of that, um, is coming out right after the failure of the new international economic order and the, the sort of the turn to neoliberalism in, in the world economy. And so I think all of the focus on anarchy and uh, bipolarity and superpower competition really obscured um, the, the, the sort of the, the significant, the, the East-West, focus on East-West conflict really obscured the profound uh, changes in North-South relations and the sort, of the, the, the sort of the challenge that the Global South had made to the North. So it was, it, I, I don't think it was a conspiracy of any kind, but it's interesting that, um, that Waltz's book um, and that neorealist abstraction describing the world as anarchic at a moment when voices from the global South were protesting very loudly about how hierarchical. And for a world to be hierarchical, uh, that it, 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 you know, the, the critique was that this is a very structured international environment. It's not a pure anarchy and purely anarchic uh, environment. So it sounds like you're saying that the origins of realism have this sort of um, undercurrent of being based in the thought of empire. And in some ways, I almost get the impression that there's almost this, this social Darwinist sort of undercurrent. Could you discuss those two things? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think to go back to your first question uh, about how to define realism, I think realism, the realism, the first Atlantic realist moment that I describe um, in my book, uh, is one in which empire is first, empire and the prerogatives of great power are first um, enumerated and naturalized. And so what I'm trying to describe is how um, an account 
of the, the world of, of international politics through the lens of um, th through a science inflected lens, right? A social Darwinist inflected lens with pseudoscientific ideas about racial hierarchy, uh, but also very tendentious pseudoscientific ideas about geopolitics um, uh, tries to um, um, de describe an objective world of imperial competition. And so there's there's the so so there, there's a Darwinian a sort of Darwinian conception of nature is then then becomes the lens through which international politics is viewed, and um, and then secondarily, the statesman is encouraged to cultivate within him or herself, though at the time it's all men, uh, a realist sensibility. What is a realist sensibility? A realist sensibility is making this naturalness of empire a matter of second nature, right? To, to make empire common sense, to, 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 to treat it as, uh, so, so the, the, the objective naturalness of empire and the sort of assimilation of the social world to nature is then reflected at this, the level of the statesman's sensibility that you're supposed, it's supposed to become common sense and, and your second nature, right? To, uh, to behave and perceive the world through an imperial lens. And, and that's very abstract. Concretely, what I talk about is the fact that Germany and the United States are two young empires competing with one another, competing with Great Britain. And they are looking across the Atlantic and learning from each other what it takes to be a great power. And the, the, the key concept in this period is that of a world, to be a world power. So both Germany and America in the late 19th century had been continental powers. Uh, and your listeners are familiar with the ideas of manifest destiny and the Monroe Doctrine. And so United States has long been a hemispheric power. And so too, Germany has long been a continental power. But in a kind of strange mutation in the perception of, of, of international affairs, the Germans and the Americans both arrived at the idea that a true realpolitik, and they, they, they use this, this concept, uh, a truly realistic politics depended on um, uh, states becoming not just continental powers, but world powers. And that meant naval power, colonies, and a, a kind of projection of power on a global scale. And um, so it wasn't just empire that gave birth to realism, but, but a kind of um, a sense that the entire globe is the theater of imperial competition. And, um, and also that the finite space of the globe, the kind of shrinking frontier uh, 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 for, for colonial expansion raised the stakes and um, created, intensified the, the pressure to be a power of the first rank. 
And I'm very interested in this, these, these metaphors that persist down to the present day about world power, you know, great powers having to play a role on the world stage. And what does it mean to be a power of the first rank? And this is mirrored in, our, in the discussion of the Ukraine, the Ukraine war today, where I think, I think um, uh, you know, an underappreciated dimension of the causes of Putin's invasion of Ukraine is precisely this sense that um, uh, that Russia has been threatened with a loss of rank, a, a, a diminution from the status of a world power to that of a uh, a regional power, and even within its region, um, you know, feeling pressure and 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 threat. So I think that so that so for me. The, the leitmotif of realism that goes from the 1880s up to the 2020s is this idea of great powers and their, uh, their prerogatives and uh, this kind of naturalization of spheres of influence, um, which is very pronounced in, in Mearsheimer, of course, and is his, the basis of his sort of explanation of the war is that the West you know, poked the bear, prodded, you know, went into Russia's neighborhood. And, you know, my position on all of this is that for the left to accede to the idea that uh, Russia has a, a legitimate sphere of influence in Europe begs the question, why did we spend so much time, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, fighting against the Reagan administration's effort to control our hemisphere, right? For me, the left project is consistently anti-imperialist. It refuses both the Monroe Doctrine and the Putin Doctrine, or rather the, the, the Monroe Doctrine and the Roosevelt Corollary on the one hand, and the Putin Doctrine on the other. So I, I think that... Um, so for me, the, the really the, the, the main thread of realism is this naturalization of spheres of influence and kind of pseudoscientific ideas about that, kind of geographical determinism. And then the way I was which... going to say really quick, if I could. Yeah, yeah, please. I think one of the big things that I'm getting when we're talking about this is that in a lot of ways, realism, it seems to get framed as being non-ideological. And I think right. part of what you're getting at is you very much disagree with that. Yes, that's a great, that's a great, that's a great intervention and, and insight. I mean, I was listening to a podcast the other day talking about Xi Jinping and China and the, 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 the interviewer um, framed, the, framed the question, you know, is Xi Jinping animated more by uh, realist instincts or ideological ones, right? Does he have, does he want to export a Chinese model? Does he want to transform the world in China's image? Or does he uh, uh, merely want to uh, pursue his, uh, uh, his, his interests in realist fashion? And I just think that this, this goes back to the, the, the notion that pursuing national interests is non-ideological um, 
seems to me to, 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 to not make a lot of sense because the very concept of national interest is ideological. Who decides what's in the national interest? Can you tell me what's it, the objective national interest of the United States? I don't think so. Um, you know, is it in the objective national interest of the United States to have uh, access to cheap gasoline? Maybe, but from an intragenerational perspective, is that really in the interest of, of my grandchildren here in the United States to just to, 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 you know, to, from a, from a carbon um, standpoint. And there are many other examples, but the, the, the notion of national interest, uh, as we've known, you know, since Noam Chomsky's work in the 80s, which, you know, I have problems with some of Chomsky's positions, but one thing I learned from Chomsky was that national interest is often an ideological uh, uh, screen or distortion um, of elite interests, right? So, and those elites, you know, they, they, have, a, they have an image of uh, the good society. And, and, and so I think this idea that realism is just the, um, uh, the hard wiring, the, the inescapable, you know, zero degree, what Bart called writing degree zero, right? Like there's, you know, it, it, it just, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's very, um, and of course, what the constructivists have shown us in their school of IR theory is that, um, yeah, that all of these purportedly objective ideas, um, like anarchy or the national interest, are actually um, deeply constructed and contested. These are not just natural facts out, out there. So then, bringing that all together, it sounds like, and I think you've used this term before, that realism is almost uh, the shadow self of uh, imperialism. Could you discuss what you mean by that? Well, it's I, I actually talk about liberalism. So realism is 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 the the shadow. I'm the, sorry, I got that no, wrong. No, the the shadow fine. self of liberalism. Yeah, the, 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 that realism is the kind of shat, the disavowed shadow side uh, of liberalism. And what I'm what I'm getting at there, I mean, of course, the idea of the shadow is just something I borrowed from from Jung, and I have no deep investment in in Jung in Jung, uh, the, the the psychologist. But it's just a phrase. But the notion is that um, liberalism likes to congratulate itself on somehow being above power politics. And so it kind of disavows, this is what Jung meant by the shadow, is the self kind of disavows some, some aspect of itself. So liberalism disavows its power political side. And that gives it, <laughs> that gives it a distorted self-image. And so um, I think that there's a real danger that, um, I mean, I don't, there, there, there's a real danger that if you see that you, that, that people tend to, well, every IR theory class teaches realism and liberalism as the two main paradigms, the two opposites. And I want to put those two together and show that 
liberalism had a very realist face in the sense of supporting empire, supporting white supremacy, you know, all of the most recent historiography on a, on a figure like Woodrow Wilson or the League of Nations underscores those racial and civilizational and uh, imperial dimensions to liberalism. Um, and realism likes to describe itself as non-ideological, as kind of sober and um, you know, not invested in anything uh, messianic or missionary, uh, you know, take, take a distance from those flaws of liberalism. But in fact, uh, realism was also, as, as I show in great detail, um, a way of rationalizing empire in the same period. So this is also important for the contemporary discussion because um, there are many realists um, of both right and, you know, uh, sort of conservative realists, but also realists on the left, the American, the progressive left, uh, whether it's at Quincy Institute or defense priorities, which are, you know, very serious and important think tanks whose projects of restraining um, and um, reorienting American foreign policy away from militarism, I completely support. But the notion that the choice is either a messianic liberal internationalism that believes it it has the capacity um, and the duty to spread democracy and human rights everywhere, or real the realism of restraint, I think that um, those are not the two choices. I would like to see us move beyond both liberal internationalism or interventionism and the realism of restraint. Why? Why do I think we can do better than the realism of restraint? Because I don't think that power politics, national interest, and uh, all of these things are actually hardwired into the international system. I think that the left should not, in its eagerness to restrain militarism and its pragmatic impulse to build bridges with realists, I, I think that the left uh, is, is making a big mistake in abdicating a more imaginative uh, vision of social justice, of cosmopolitanism, uh, of the planetary, and, um, and also of national self-determination, which many left realists seem to be willing to sacrifice uh, Ukrainian national self-determination um, on the altar of uh, great power prerogative and in order to prevent uh, a reheating of the Cold War and a vindication of American militarism. So it's interesting. I, I want to get into the Quincy aspect. And I, I only had a few more questions here. But uh, so we see the rise of, of the Quincy Institute. And in many ways, I, I view that as um, a welcome thing, especially as someone who grew up in, in the era of the Iraq War. And I, I feel like the return of realism uh, was a direct result 
of the Iraq War. Uh, and I, I think it's yes. the reason a lot more people uh, know about Mersheimer um, post, uh, like post millennium, uh, because he was one of the people that opposed it. Uh, so what are we to make of uh, the Quincy Institute? And I'm really interested in uh, how you've spoken of some people at Quincy, I believe, including Andrew Basevich as sort of being the dissenting face of realism. And uh, I know this is a long and complicated question, but do you think there, do you think it's possible uh, to work with uh, people at the Quincy Institute? If, if say I'm on the left and someone at Quincy is on the right, is it possible to have like limited sort of uh, coalitions while also realizing, hey, you know, leftists and realism were not necessarily on the same side? Right. Well. Well. First off. I, I want to make it clear that I, I don't think Quincy is on the right by any stretch. So, I mean, they are basically 70% lefties and maybe 30% conservatives, where they overlap is on a vision of imperial restraint. And I'm all for imperial restraint. Um, I, you know, I mean, Basevich is a, is a retired colonel who lost his son in the Iraq war. And I completely agree uh, that, um, you know, America shouldn't have 800 military bases around the world and an $800 billion military budget. All of this makes perfect sense to me. But I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that, um, that that the left that there are other principles besides there are other principles that are important to keep in mind um we we should not sacrifice our commitment to a consistent anti-imperialism to this project of restraining american militarism um and i think the their response would probably be well you know, if you support Ukraine, if you support the Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian aspirations too vigorously, you invariably uh, invigorate the military industrial complex and you give the neocons a shot in the arm. And it's true. I mean, I can't deny I mean, that. I, I'll be honest. That's one of my big concerns. <laughs> no, that's absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, there is a real politique to Washington, D.C., and I think the Quincy people are very smart in, um, you know, trying to draw down America's imperial overreach, which has been a prime concern of mine. I mean, I'm coming from the same place as those guys. I mean, I, you know, I was coming up in the 80s, you know, with an anti, you know, fight, fighting Reagan on South Africa and Central America. And then I was against you know, the first Gulf War and um, and I've been against, you know, the, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the excesses of the war on terror. And I understand all of this. We're completely in sync in, in, in this sense. What so in other words, in short, I'm pro restraint, but I'm not I don't I'm not pro restraint on realist grounds. And I and, and I think it would be a shame if uh our enthusiasm for restraint would um, have the effect of legit legitimating a lot of very discredited ideas of realism 
um, that have been, you know, critiqued by uh, interdependence theory of, of, of various kinds and sort of liberal theories of international relations, um, as well as constructivism uh, and, and, and others. Uh, but more importantly, uh, that I think realism has this imperial, this uh, apologetic quality. Apolo uh, there's an apology for empire and a naturalization of empire that I think if you're a cynic and you think we're always going to live in a world of empires or a pessimist, then okay, maybe that's maybe that's the world we live in and the best we can do is restrain those empires. But I, I have a more ambitious, uh, uh, I have more ambitious aspirations for a world beyond empire. So uh, I just wanted to cover two figures that come up in the book before we start wrapping up. And, and you sort of covered him before, but uh, I've always been very fascinated by the figure of Hans Morgenthal and his intellectual trajectory. And I know uh, your book has a lot of criticism of Morgenthal, but I, I, I always had a, a deep respect for Morgenthal, especially because of his views on Vietnam and he coming out, uh, you know, against Vietnam. Could you talk a little bit about Morgenthal and your sort of analysis of him, uh, both, you know, pro and con, I guess? Right. So, again, um, I, you know, William Scheuermann is, 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 has written a brilliant book on Morgenthal. Uh, which aimed to kind of recover the progressive Morgenthau. I mean, Morgenthau was on the, the, he was invited to be on the board of the Institute for Policy Studies, America's leading left-wing think tank. And um, Scheuermann basically thought that, that Morgenthau had been caricatured as um, someone who only cared about power politics and uh, had an insufficient commitment to uh, morality and law and international affairs. Um, and um, Morgenthau was the, the one of, I, I believe he was the first government official to come out against the war in 1965 um, and on the grounds that the war was not in the national interest. And so Morgenthau, in some sense, is exhibit A for the thesis that realism can be anti-imperial or at least protest uh, uh, the excesses of, of, of American uh, imperialism. And so why do I insist that realism is imperial to the core? Well, I think that, uh, or, why, or why, why do I remain critical of Morgenthau if he was able to make the right call on Vietnam? Well, I think that um, Morgenthau was his own worst popularizer. And uh, in the 1940s and 50s, he allowed his, the subtle, the nuances of his realism to be flattened out. That there were kind of a temptation of power and access and the, the sort of blandishments of the Cold War encouraged him um, to, uh, to flatten out realism into a kind of American power politics. And um, I, I think that if, if, since Morgenthau is a big fan of, of Weber's ethic of responsibility, I think that Morgenthau has to take responsibility 
for this oversimplification and, and this oversimplification of his views. Moreover, I think even in the case of the critique of the Vietnam War, making the national interest the center of the critique decenters the global South, right? Vietnam is wrong because it's not in the American national interest? No, Vietnam is wrong because it's a genocidal war, right? I mean, so Morgenthau was an ally, right? But he was not, he's not a man of the left. He's not a socialist. He's a, he's a rather conservative liberal, good on civil rights, you know, not, not, um, not a Kissinger, not a, uh, 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 not a, not a neo-realist uh, either. Um, so I think that- it, it, It's interesting, just real yeah. quick. It sounds like he's not someone that, he, he may not have been someone that had uh, a major amount of faith in, uh, you know, the masses. Like, I, I guess one huh. thing about a lot of realists is, I, I think there is a tendency towards, uh, you know, there are just these great statesmen and they know better than, uh, you know, the, the plebiscites. Right. So this is the demo. This is the, the other, the other rap I have. Well, there are a couple, couple other things on Morgenthau. One is that there's, he takes on a great deal of Carl Schmitt's uh, concept of the political, his, his, his book, scientific man versus power politics is almost entire is almost almost a, a a riff on on Schmidt, and the idea there is that any effort to kind of really truly tame power politics uh, will fail, and that that is a, a deeply anti-humanist, anti-rationalist, um, very indebted to political theology. Uh, very pessimistic account about the sort of man's sinful nature and the, the our inability to kind of transcend, you know, the hard wiring of, 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 of the lust for power. We're, we're inherently fallen, in other words. Yes, yes, yes. This is the Christian theme in, you know, the, this is Niebuhr's, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's theme, who Basevich has also written the introduction to, to, to Niebuhr's Irony of American History, which is uh, a, a great book. Um, so Morgenthau, um, too much of the concept of political, uh, but also uh, the, a, a real democratic deficit. Um, like many realists, uh, and this is a theme I, I trace through the whole book, um, there is this kind of sense that uh, the realist is is an elite statesman who has to, and that the the truths of realism, right? These hard truths about the objective facts of of the world, um, have to be insulated from the demos, from the people, with all of their unruly emotions and moral feelings and attachments, um, and so. Um, uh, you know, I think I think realism is very much you know a set of practices for an elite an elite statesman. If I could, I was actually talking yeah. to someone who was. Um, this wasn't on air, but it, it was a friend of mine who who I would say is sort of an acolyte of of Mersheimer. And I, you know, I have respect for Mersheimer, but I I don't agree with him on all his views, right? Uh, but I I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as in line with his sort of 
um, offensive realism. But I, I was talking to them about the Ukraine situation, and this sort of gets at what you're saying. I, I finally said to them, uh, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is, well, it sucks, but Ukraine is a smaller country, so they're just going to have to be under the thumb of Russia because this is Russia's th- sphere of influence. It doesn't right. matter. They're just a smaller country, and that sucks right. for them, but this is the way it is. And that's where I think that that issue of a democracy deficit really becomes very apparent when that sort of attitude gets out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, is this, I, I think we can do better than return to uh, the law of the jungle and, the, you know, the, the, the might makes right. And, 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 and to be fair, the classical realists were better than that. They were, so. Know, well, I mean, I, I think that a, a, a figure like Morgenthau uh, or Niebuhr, the, these people are these people are deeply concerned about ethics and the trade-offs between what they see as the exigencies of the Cold War or um, the the promptings of the national interest um, and 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 ethical concerns, and they're deeply troubled by nuclear war. Um, so, you know, I think. Um, um, and yet, I think uh, at the end of the day, they also they also succumb to this uh, this um, pessimism. And um, uh, so, so I guess what I'm saying is this 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 Thucydidean idea that the strong do what they must and the weak sorry the strong do what they can and the weak do what they must. Um, I guess, I guess that is kind of preserved in the classical realist era. It's just, there's more of an ethical concern for, um, for the, the, the costs of that than, there, than you find in the neo-realists. But I, I guess you're right that um, there's still, at the end of the day, there is still too much deference to uh, the prerogatives of great powers and this kind of sense that, that, that uh, uh, I guess Morgenthau would not say that might makes right. That, that, that's, that's, that would be going too far. You also mentioned Carl Schmidt. Uh, is there anything else you can say about how he figures into the book? Because he's, He's a very interesting figure because he's around in Germany during the time of the, the Third Reich, uh, but then yeah. he goes into being a, a, a sort of theorist of, of, of uh, legal thought um, that's influential even on liberalism in the Cold War era. Right. So, um, I mean, Schmidt has become fashionable in the last 20 years including on not only for neoconservatives, but also on the left uh, for his notion that he who invokes humanity wants to cheat. Uh, And that, that, so people sort of saw the kind of uh, war, American wars authorized by humanitarianism or human rights, allegedly, you know, in the name of human rights. And they thought that Schmidt offered a kind of insight into uh, the, the hypocrisies uh, of liberalism and gave a kind of deep insight into the nature of international politics. So what I do with Schmidt in the book is 
first of all, reconstruct the influence of Schmidt on, Karl, on, on Hans Morgenthau, which was considerable, not the only um, uh, influence, but very important influence. And then I also try to trace out the influence of Karl Schmidt on the leading realist in West Germany, Wilhelm Greve, uh, who was uh, someone who had uh, both a distinguished academic career and a uh, long uh, diplomatic career, much like Henry Kissinger uh, in the United States. And I also try to, um, I also talk about Schmidt's theory of Grossraum or great spaces, uh, which, is a, which is a variant of this idea. He, he, well, Schmidt, <laughs> uh, Schmidt writes a book uh, that, that uh, in support of the Nazis in 1939, um, in which he calls for Germanic Monroe Doctrine. And so this was really one of the entry points to how I framed my whole book was, what's going on here? What, why are the Germans studying the Monroe Doctrine? Why are the Nazis studying the Monroe Doctrine? And without trying to collapse American imperialism and, and Nazi imperialism into one bucket and say it's a big undifferentiated uh, you know, uh, thing, uh, I, I became interested in the movement of ideas back and forth across the Atlantic. And the Monroe Doctrine for me is this kind of, uh, this, this seminal text for both American and German realism. And we can see how that echoes down to the Mearsheimer debate. Last things here, uh, and I know you've been asked this before, but uh, is there a potential for a, a realism that is anti-imperialist? And I know you've mentioned Charles Beard um, in this regard. Right, an anti-imperialist realism. Well, I mean, I think that the the restrainer realists at Quincy are are doing a good job um, of fighting imperialism in 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 their own way. If if uh, but, um, you know, I do, I do think that realism has difficulty, um, getting at, at, at the roots, uh, of empire rather than simply it's, um, it's most extreme, uh, manifestations. So, uh, can there be an anti-imperialist realism? I think so. I think that, I mean, what, what my friend and colleague, William Shoreman has shown is that cosmopolitans can learn a great deal from the realists. And I think that anti-imperialists um, will have to contend with the realist uh, analysis. You know, the realists, we have to take it on board. We have to take it seriously. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it, 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 it may leaven our ambitions, it may tamp, tamp down our ambitions to, to attain a world beyond empire, but I don't think we should uh, give up the fight at, at the outset. So what, one thing that has come up in, in recent months with Quincy is this criticism of, um, I think it was Eikenberry and, and Dudney who wrote uh, about the, the Quincy coalition. And they were very critical of uh, the coalition of progressives, libertarians, and conservatives. It sounds like you're not saying, you know, uh, we can't have coalitions um, in favor of restraint. It sounds like you're saying we have to 
you know, know when we disagree with our allies and, you know, where our visions differ? I guess I would say, you know, I'm a critic of realism, but that doesn't make me a liberal internationalist. And I support restraint, but I also, I support it more on socialists and cosmopolitan grounds than on realist grounds. And I also think that restraint is, it may be, a, it may be what, it may be the most realistic <laughs> uh, um, antidote, or, or it might be the most realistic path for progressive politics in this half decade or what have you. But I think it's only- But you're saying we should, we, we should have a greater imagination than that. Correct. It's a halfway house to, you know, I would like to see an internationalism, you know, worthy of the name. And we, liberal internationalism is not it because it preserves too much of American exceptionalism and American imperial privilege. But I think the realism of restraint um, is not- normatively ambitious enough about um, about shaping, um, you know, a world uh, um, that is uh, just and sustainable and so forth. And the last thing here, what do you hope listeners get out of the conversation we've been having and uh, the book if they uh, pick it up? Well, I think one thing we haven't touched on that I would hope that that um, readers will get from the book is that we all, you know, we often think of America and England as having a special relationship. Uh, the Anglo-American tradition in uh, political thought and foreign policy. But what I really bring out in my book is how close the German and American experiences are over a century. Um, and, you know, given the fact that um, uh, Germany is the most powerful country in Europe and, and America and Germany are both rethinking their place in the world uh, post-Cold War and, and, and even now in the, this post-Russian post invasion moment. Uh, I, I think my book gives a lot of insight into the, um, the long transatlantic cross-fertilization of ideas um, and um, and also that, you know, my argument is also that as we try to globalize international relations and decolonize uh, uh, international relations of Eurocentrism, it's important to recognize realism's provincial North Atlantic roots in this US-German dialogue. So I'm really trying to provincialize realism and, um, suggest that it's it's so bound up with uh, with imperialism that it doesn't really get us to the next where we should be getting uh, as as a global community, which is towards uh, a, a world that is both more multipolar in this but but also uh, um, uh, anti-imperialist. And right now I think we're, you know, the realist restrainers are taking us towards multipolarity, but not beyond imperialism. And is there anything you would want to say to, I, I have a lot of listeners that probably uh, agree with this sort of realist um, okay. sort of viewpoint. What, what would you say to them or, or what would you want them to rethink? Well, 
I mean, I think we've already put quite a bit on the table in terms of deconstructing uh, the idea of power politics, geo, uh, uh, the national interest, the idea of anarchy as opposed to hierarchy. But I would also um, I would also also submit that geopolitics is um, a a uh, a tradition um, with an intellectual history that's that's worth that that I tell in my in my book, which I think will uh, will interest readers and um, will show its tight links to um, discourses of. Um, white supremacy and um, things that that may give them them pause. Well, I want to thank you again, Matthew Spector, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work? And also, uh, well, I guess they can um, buy the book, The Atlantic Realists, wherever books are sold. Yes, and I I also tweet at Spector Matt um, and. Um, Happy to hear from, from any listeners or readers. Next up, Marlon Ettinger returns to the program to discuss the French election and his analysis of it. He was recently going to some of the rallies in France ahead of the election, and he has a lot to report. Longtime listeners will remember that Marlon is a good friend of the show who has spoken with us in the past about the Jeffrey Epstein case, and particularly the French connection to that case, Jean-Luc Brunel. So, with all that being said, let's get right to it with Marlon Ettinger making his long-awaited return to Parallax Views. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm always happy to have on. Uh, Marlon Ettinger, who a lot of people know is the French Connection, although I believe he's back in the U.S. now. So um, how are you doing, Marlon? Yeah, I'm in New York State right now, um, but I was in France for the election. Um, I'd hoped to do some Jean-Luc Brunel coverage, but I didn't get time to do it this time. I was like, I have the presidential election, but it was really interesting in the presidential election. So uh, for the ignorant Yankees in the audience... Um, <laughs> What what was the significance of this uh, last election in France? So obviously it's over now. Macron was reelected. That's the first time a president's been reelected uh, since since about twenty years. Jacques Chirac uh, in two thousand two. He, you know, there was a, it was really uncertain for a while who was going to be president. It was sort of this conventional wisdom that Macron would be reelected, re and that was true. He was reelected, but Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who I covered a lot, the left-wing candidate, who you probably heard me talk about. If you haven't, that was the first of many times you hear me talk about him. He came really close. He came with 400,000 votes and making the second-round runoff. France has a runoff system, so it was Macron and Le Pen who made the runoff, but. Mélenchon got 22% of the vote. Le Pen got 23.2% of the vote. And it was a real shame because the left sort of splintered this election, as often happens. You know, the French Communist Party had backed Mélenchon in the last two elections, 2012 and 2017. But this time, they ran their own candidate, Fabien Roussel. 
he got 800,000 votes, you know, so it's like a big moment of what could have been if they had just followed the same alliance they had the past two elections. Mélenchon could have been in the second round. There was a ton of anti-Macron sentiment. I saw it everywhere. I went to Avignon. I went to Bordeaux. I went to Lille. I went to Marseille. I went to Toulouse, Paris, of course, and the suburbs around it, Babigny, Montreuil, uh, Asnières, Saint-Seine. So now a lot of people, of course, are disappointed by the results because he came closer than ever. In 2012, he got like 12%. 2017, he got 19%. Now he got 22%. But the upshot of the election is French political life is basically revolves around three camps now. There's the camp led by Macron, which has sort of folded the entire French political establishment into its tent. Both Francois Hollande and Nicolas Sarkozy, Hollande from the Socialist Party, Sarkozy from Les Républicains, the traditional right-wing party, endorsed Macron this election against Le Pen. And a lot of people from both of those parties, in 2017, they came into the party, and now even more they've come into the party because Les Républicains, Sarkozy's party, got 4.4% of the vote. The socialists got 1.7% of the vote. The main, the traditional parties are sort of dead, but they're reanimated in Macron's party, La République en Marche. They've found a new tent to get under. And then the other two blocks are Le Pen, of course, and Reconquête, this party founded by Eric Zemmour, a particularly, you know, people joke around that he makes Le Pen look like a, a liberal. He's very hardline, as they say in immigration. He wants mass deportations, essentially. And so his group, they got 7%, which wasn't as much as he wanted, 7.2, but it was more than the two traditional parties in France. He was how, does he, to, how does Zamor and, and Le Pen maybe differ from each other? And then they're also similar in some ways, I, I suppose. So what, what's the differences and the similarities? So over the past like 10 years, Le Pen has pursued this strategy of de-devilifying to make her, to sort of sanitize her image, to get rid of the name Le Pen, which to a lot of people in France still means, you know, Jean-Marie Le Pen, her father, who called Auschwitz a detail of history, who questioned the numbers of Jewish dead in the Holocaust, who was a uh, tortured people in Algeria as a paratrooper. He just represents, you know, the lowest of the low. Vichy collaboration in the Second World War, fascism. And I honestly don't think Le Pen is very ideologically different from her father. But she's pursued the strategy with the help of the media in the past 10 years of mollifying her image. You know, she raises cats now. She's on the cover of women's magazines. She sort of presents herself as just a candidate like any other. Yeah, and I feel like uh, in some ways she presents herself as, oh, you know, the reason I, I dislike uh, the Muslim influence in our society is because I am actually an enlightenment liberal. And, uh, you know, she, she sort of tries to play around with being more, I guess, liberal than her father. Yeah, though, to be fair, everyone in French politics does that, including Zamor, even though he doesn't pretend to be a liberal. He says, you know, oh, Muslim surreal law gets rid of, you know, women in miniskirts and, you know, walking freely in the streets. That's sort of part of what is very much appealed to. Um, and uh, that's the difference. Zamor sort of is like maybe Le Pen 10 years ago in the way he speaks. And he, his function has been to mainstream a lot of these very reactionary ideas. 
that were only alluded to before. He explicitly uses the phrase, the great replacement. He says native white Christian France is being replaced by Arab and African invaders who are colonizing us and want to change our way of life and literally replace us. So that's sort of his role. And in a sense, in this election, him playing that role, let Le Pen seem more moderate. Uh, You know, she had an unprecedented vote. She got, she sort of got blown out, you could say, you know, Macron got 57%. uh, She got, no, 58%. She got 42%. I forget what the exact final numbers were. There was a count that came out on the night and then the official count, but still a big margin of 41, 42% she got. And which seems like a big blow up, but, you know, she added 3 million votes from the last election. It was her father in 2002 got five and a half million votes. She got over 13 million votes this time. So it's just a steady progression of this reactionary camp. And then there's the third camp in French politics. I guess the bright spot for me and a lot of people, which is Jean-Luc Mélenchon. And I, I wanted to called. talk about Mélenchon because uh, it's interesting. I see a lot of Western leftists say, I hated all the candidates in the French election, including Mélenchon. Mm-hmm. Why are there some leftists that are really... Um, anti-Melenchon. Yeah, you'd have to ask them, but I would say, you know, it's a traditional, he's a, he's sort of a radical left guy. He wants to get out of NATO, you know, and he doesn't back down from that. Even as he's, you know, I went to his rally in Toulouse and he began saying like, you know, this, this meeting is dedicated to the Ukrainians fighting the Russian army. But at the same time, you know, he doesn't abandon his, he thinks French should leave NATO. He thinks NATO is an offensive alliance and, you know, is not a defensive alliance, essentially. And it's a tool of American foreign policy. He has proposals that sound radical, like a maximum wage. If you make a certain amount over a month, you'll be taxed at 100%. He is not really down with the European Union. He says, if the European Union does not change, we will leave it. He says, we will try to change the European Union, but we are just not going to obey regulations that stop us from our, you know, from implementing our program, which includes nationalization, spending more, uh, has a, spending a greater deficit. And so he's sort of, he's accused of being kind of illiberal and authoritarian. He also has a violent rhetorical style, which some people don't like. I like it. A lot of people like it. He's a great speaker. Um, he attacks the media, rightfully so, I think, often. So he sort of breaks a lot of these liberal taboos and shibboleths pretty readily. So and then, he go on. represents the third political force in the country. Uh, and now with the legislative elections coming up in June, June 12th and 19th, again, the two-round system, he's managed to cobble together all the left-wing parties who have finally accepted Mélenchon is the one force on the left. And so the French Communist Party and the, even, and the Green Party and even the Socialist Party, we split from 10 years ago because of their right return, have now joined this coalition called the New Union, the New Popular Union for Ecology and, so, and uh, the New Popular Ecological and Social Union. I got confused because the word order is different in French. The acronym in French is N-U-P-E-S, NUPES. And they're running in all, pretty much all constituencies 
polls project them making the second round in four out of five constituencies. They have the lead in the polls in the first round. It remains to be seen how many seats they'll win in the second round because, you know, there's been this sort of freak out again on the French right at this left-wing coalition led by Mélenchon. And even on parts of the so-called left, like the Socialist Party, people left the Socialist Party when the Socialist, including France and Bernard Cazeneuve, the former prime minister, left the Socialist Party because they say, you know, Mélenchon is an Islamo-leftist. He isn't committed to secularism. He's a wannabe dictator. And because they are, again, coming close to winning a big victory. And obviously, it remains to be seen just how many seats they'll win and if they can get enough to get a majority. But it's the closest the left has ever been in a long time. So what do you see this meaning for the future in, in France? Well, like I said, it's these three camps and they've sort of revealed themselves for what they are. Um, Macron in 2017 ran sort of beyond politics and he got a lot of support or even votes from people on the left. You know, he was the minister in Hollande's government, even though Hollande's Socialist Party government was a right-wing government that instituted anti-worker laws, states of emergency and raised their retirement age. But that sort of, that's, that mask is cast aside now. You know, he is a candidate of the right. And he made some feints to the left before the second round because, you know, they wanted to get Mélenchon voters to vote for him. He talked about ecology, et cetera. But the first thing on their agenda is raising the retirement age to 65. They want to change the pension regime. And so what, you know, French politics, I think, is a lot clearer now. It's pretty obvious that Macron isn't an alternative to anything. You know, he was young. I talked with a lot of Macron, people, like people on the staff at the Victory Night Party, and I always ask people what their first memories of a candidate is. And all of them said about Macron, you know, one thing, you know, he's young. He looks like me. He's young. That's all he has. He's young. There's no difference. He's only different from the established parties, and that is a younger version of them. So what does this mean for the left? Uh, I think there's some good chances for the left. Yeah, I think there's some good chances for it. You know, this coalition, uh, I don't know how long it'll hold. They've all agreed that if they get a majority, Mélenchon will be prime minister. Now, a lot of people in some of these parties, particularly the Socialist Party, you know, hate Mélenchon. And the Communist Party, Fabien Roussel, criticized Mélenchon a lot too during the election other presidential election, which is why they ran their own unique candidates. I think now they realize the only way they're going to get any seats is through a coalition. So some people are supporting the coalition for just ambitious politician reasons. Some people are supporting the coalition because they've genuinely had a come to Jesus moment and realize Mélenchon controls the electoral left movement in the country. And they were remiss in not joining it earlier. If Mélenchon wins and becomes prime minister, which still requires the technically the appointment of Macron, but he could become the leader of the biggest party in the National Assembly. If that happens, you know, victory transforms people. <laughs> you know, there could be it could become a lot more of a permanent coalition, even if it does very well and he doesn't become prime minister. The party, uh, Mélenchon's party, La France Insoumise, 
which ran sort of under the banner of Union Popular, Popular Union. There's talk that Union Popular is going to formalize itself as a party. The past two elections, he's run as a, a movement. These La France Insoumise isn't really a party. Union Populaire isn't really a party. It's sort of a personalist movement to launch him into the presidency. But obviously, this, that was his last run for the presidency, he said. So the last thing I want to touch upon, uh, we, we have to talk about it briefly, and I'm going to read the, the whole thing later, and we'll, we'll come back to it at, at a, a later date. But uh, you have a new book out, I believe it's from Ebb Books, um, yeah. called uh, Zamor and Degaulism. Uh, for people that don't know, uh, maybe you could tell them a little bit about what that book's about and um, what Degaulism is. Yeah. So Charles de Gaulle uh, was the resistance hero in World War II. He was a minor general. He was a sub-minister in the French Defense Ministry when the government signed an armistice with Nazi Germany. And he decided, no, I'm going to resist. He went to London. He gave speeches. He led the Free French Movement. There were other parts of the French resistance, including the communist led liberation. But when, but essentially, when de Gaulle came back, he took power briefly in the new government of the Fourth Republic, and but quickly left politics. He was only in power really for a year because he didn't like the fact that French politics was dominated off by so many popular forces, really. And he didn't believe the presidency of the Fourth Republic gave him the power to manage that. You know, the Communist Party was strong, the Socialist Party, the nascent Socialist Party, SFIO, it became the Socialist Party, was strong. Um, and then in 1958, he came back to power under the threat of a coup d'etat in the context of this crisis in Algeria, the crisis being the fact that the Algerians didn't want to be a colony anymore and were leading a national liberation struggle. And the Fifth Republic, which is France now, France still is governed by the constitution of the Fifth Republic, gave the presidency large powers. You know, the president can not only approve legislation, he can draft legislation. The presidency um, has immunity, both criminal and political. He has no, that's why Nicolas Sarkozy, you, you might've heard he's been in legal trouble. He's never gonna go in prison because the French president has criminal immunity. And in the constitution, it even says he has political immunity, which means he doesn't need to be accountable for the parliaments. Anyway, de Gaulle is now a sacrosanct, sort of national saints in France, streets everywhere are named after him. And every politician plays, pays fealty to de Gaulle, says I'm a Gaullist. Eric Zamor does too. And when he started doing this, people were shocked. You know, how can you say that this almost this racist, this fascist type is paying homage to Charles de Gaulle? And yet, I read a biography of Charles de Gaulle before I wrote the book, and I, I find actually what Charles de Gaulle said is a lot what Zamor is saying. Charles de Gaulle warned against, you know, he said, I want more French babies and fewer immigrants. He said, oh, do you want this country to be using a very offensive racial sort of like Arabified? You know, he didn't want this immigration coming in. And so the book gets into that. There's it a little sounds, bit of a real, real yeah. quick, too, it sounds like, too, uh, you know, my understanding of de Gaulle is he, he almost becomes this, like, uh, great man of France, you know, in, in reference to, like, the great man yeah. theory of history. So I could see why right-wingers uh, like Zamora would be drawn to him. Yeah, you know, I think even de Gaulle said about himself, but 
a lot of people say about him, he's a 19th century man. He believed in empire. He believed in the nation state. And that's a big reason why he entered resistance. He was against German imperialism, more the German part than the imperialism part. He rejected the idea that Germany should rule France. That was his motivation. So is there anything else you want to say about the book or how uh, listeners can get a hold of it? Yeah, hopefully we have a longer discussion about it, but listeners can go to, you know, find Ed Magazine, their website, and it's on the front front page. I think it's ed-magazine.com. Um, there's some reportage in it. Some of the stuff when I was in France, I went to a Zamor rally. That's interesting to read on its own. And that's about what it. What was your impression of uh, the Zamor rallies? Like what, I mean, like, inside the give us an inside perspective on like what was drawing these people are they all just like you know is it is it just like oh i i wish we could be more racist in this country or is there other things driving it like what what, what is your impression of these some more supporters at the rallies yeah well all of them told me that they weren't racist i didn't ask them if they were racist but they told me i'm not racist you know um a lot of them were driven by the racial grievance and the idea that France was being invaded. Some of them, I talked to some business like owners and they're like, France is taxed too much. It's just tax, 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 tax. And then, you know, giving money to people who don't work. It's the, it's like a familiar, a familiar thing to anyone who in the United States hears about this grievance, but they, none, none would admit to being racist. Or though all which might say that they're politically incorrect. Like one was complaining about couscous winning on MasterChef, you know, a couscous dish, you know. Another was saying, "Oh, I'm Pol. My grandmother was Polish, but we never spoke Polish in our house. We're in France, so we have to speak French." This type of this type of thing. And uh, say for the rally, I always tell everybody it was like being at a fascist rally. So that's not true. It wasn't like being. At a fascist rally. It was a fascist rally. Well, Marlon Ettinger, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax News. Anything else that we didn't cover that you wanted to say in closing, either uh, about the election or your experiences covering it? Just follow me on Twitter and get the book, Marlon Ettinger at Twitter. There'll be more coming. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Matthew Spector and Marlon Ettinger. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. All the information for how you can make a monthly donation to this show is available on the Patreon website. It is you, the listener, that makes this show possible. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why 
I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.